You are listening to a message that was given at Living Word Chapel, Oracle, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you and enrich your life. For more information, visit lwcoracle.org. Now, who we were in our identity in Adam compared to who we are now in our new identity uh, as children of God. And so our text is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And I'm going to read from the New International Version. But when the time said had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we sing about your grace, Father, we just want to thank you for your amazing, wondrous grace. Thank you for your steadfast love. Father, I pray that our hearts and our ears would be open, Father, to hear your voice, and we ask that you speak to us today and teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin by looking at who we were, the identity that we had in Adam, and I'll just kind of briefly give a history lesson of the Old Testament. So we know that man was created by God for the purpose of fulfilling God's Uh, desire to have fellowship with us. And uh, man was given the potential of having eternal life so that he could spend all eternity with his creator. And God gave him uh, the ability to choose. Uh, He had a free will. But what good is it to have choice if there aren't any choices? And so God created this garden and he placed two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told man that you're free to eat of any of these trees in the garden except from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the story how man chose to live his life independent of God. And a result of that rebellion, that disobedience, was that sin entered into the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. You know, we read in uh, Romans that all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standards. Uh, And so God had a plan to redeem man and to restore him. And he gave a promise of a son to Abraham. And Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. And it's through his lineage that the Son of God would be born and would be the redeemer of mankind. Well, later through Moses, God set the standard of his perfection and required that we measure up to it in order to be in right standing before him. And this is the law. And the purpose of the law was to point us to God's righteous standard. And it was also to reveal our sin. And so the law revealed 
the root problem of humanity. And that's we're unable to love God fully and we're unable to love one another. Remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Because, you know, they were wanting to know which ones do we have to do in order to be right with God? And he says, the greatest commandment is to, first is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your uh, soul, and with all of your strength. And the second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But we discovered last week that we're not able to keep the law. We need a redeemer. And so we begin in verse 4 where it says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. Now, think about the law as a contract. You know, you want to buy a car. You go to the bank and you... Uh, sign this contract that has terms and conditions, and they're all written down, and there's responsibilities for that. You know, we're to make a monthly payment, and we have to make this monthly payment for the duration of this contract or this loan. And then the responsibility of the bank is to hold this note, and at the fulfillment of that contract, then they give us a clean title and say, here, it belongs to you. And so you enter in this contract and, and maybe a couple months into it, you find that you're not able to make the monthly payment. Well, the law didn't go away or the contract didn't go away. It's still there and it's kind of hanging over you. You're under this contract. But suppose a, a friend steps in and pays the full amount and the law didn't go away. It wasn't eliminated, but it was fulfilled. And so when Jesus came, he was born subject to the law. And he didn't repeal the law of God. He fulfilled it because it's good and it's the standard of God's perfection. When I was in junior high, I remember our coach set up a high jump in the gym on, uh, you know, P.E., and uh, he told us the, taught us the technique of how to jump over this bar. And it was right around the time of the Olympics where the guy that wore his hat backwards and he would do this backwards flip over, kind of different from everybody else that up to that time, they just kind of threw one leg over and then the other leg and just kind of rolled over it sideways. And so we were all trying to do this backwards flip. And uh, he set the bar at about 32 inches. And it... You know, it took us a little bit to get the technique, but then after a while, everybody could clear that 32 inches. And then he began to raise the bar, little by little, until nobody was able to get over this bar. And so, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus raised the standard set by the law of Moses. And he did this to identify that the root of man's inability to keep the commandments of God has to do with his heart. Jesus identified that the real problem is the heart of man. And so he raised the bar, so to speak, when he said, You heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, even if you look lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it said, do not murder. 
But I say, even if you call your brother a fool, you are guilty. And he continued in his teaching, raising the bar, until he ended with this uh, statement that you are to be perfect as your Father God is perfect. But we're not able to keep the law. And the reason is it has to do with our heart. We read in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart of human The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. And so Jesus, in his teaching, was able to cut through all the outward facades of the Pharisees' empty rituals and traditions. You know, they're careful to clean up the outside of the cup. Everything looks good from the outside, but they neglect to clean the inside. And since Jesus is God, he was able to examine their heart. There's a mother that was taking her children to school, and this was before seatbelts were a requirement. And so she's driving her children, and her youngest son is standing in the seat next to her. And she realized that, you know, there's a danger here. And so she said, sit down, dear, because I may have to stop suddenly, and I don't want you thrown up against the, the dash or the windshield. No, came the stubborn reply. She said, Please sit down, dear. I don't want you to get hurt. No, again, the child refused. Well, she just reached over and she just pulled him down into the seat. And he sat there sullenly for a moment. Then he said, Mama, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. (laughs) And so how many of us are guilty of submitting to something But only outwardly, inside, there's something else going on. Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, said, We submit to it on the outside, but inside we're saying, I resent it. Or outwardly, to other people, we may appear to be complying with God's commands and living a holy life. But inwardly, we're having thoughts that are contrary. And so Jesus continued to reveal that the heart's sinful condition is the reason why man turns away from God. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. He said, all of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes out of your heart. And then he added, it is what comes comes out from the inside that defiles you. For from within... Out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceitful, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And this is just probably a partial list. It says all these vile things are, come from within and they are what defile you. And so we see that even if man attempts to have a relationship with God prior to Jesus coming as our Redeemer, that we're unable to do so because our hearts are far from God. You know, we can try to modify our behavior, 
you know, believing that if we, we perform well enough that we'll get God's acceptance. But God requires perfection, not just improvement. So in contrast of who we were, let's look at who we are now, our new identity in Christ. Beginning in verse 5, <clears throat> God sent him, Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to sin so that, we could, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. You see, Christ made it possible for us to become children of God. But how could this take place? How can you go from being a slave to becoming an heir? You know, the law of sin is written in stone. It's alive and it's well. And it's still convicting me of sin. But since neither the law nor uh, death, neither sin or death has died. You know, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And since neither one of those has died, then the logical uh, step is that I needed to be the one to die in order to be free from the sin. And that's signified in our baptism. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And I'm going to read Romans 6. It says, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. And did you notice all the past tenses? I'm going to read it again, and I'll put the emphasis in it now. It says, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, we also may live new lives since we have been united with him in his death. We will also be raised to life as he was. And so it's our death with Christ that ends that old life. It terminates the old man, the, that old person that we were. You know, that sin-loving sinner that could do nothing but sin because we were enslaved to, slave, enslaved to sin. But it's our co-crucifixion with Christ that's the key to our victory. And that may be a strange term for you, but just think of it. When Christ died, God had placed us in Christ and we died with him. That old man is dead. And by dying to the law, we're no longer uh, obligated or we no longer need to measure up to God's perfect standard because we've been given the righteousness of Christ. We stand before God now, holy and blameless. Folks, you can't get any more perfect than that. That ends all the striving, trying to measure up. Now through faith, we have a new heart. God foretold this mystery of regeneration through the prophet Ezekiel. He promised, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. 
And I will put my spirit in you so that you will know my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And so since the problem that we had with following God's commands was because we had a sinful heart, the condition of our heart, the solution was to give us a new one. And this new heart is received at salvation. The moment that we're born again, a heart that is no longer evil, but is responsive to God and desires to follow him dependently. And we're talking about our independence, but actually where victory is, is when we are dependent on God. So at salvation through faith, there was new birth. We've received a new nature, a new heart, a new identity, and we have been declared righteous. God looks at our new heart and he's pleased. So the truth of the gospel is we are completely accepted by our creator. We are loved, significant, and even more than being even more than that, we have been given eternal life that Adam had lost. We've been adopted by God as his children. Verse 6 and 7 reads, But we are his children. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Adoption was a common practice in the Greco-Roman world in which an adopted person would become a permanent member in a, another person's household with the same rights and responsibilities as if he were the natural-born child. And some of the most famous adopted sons in history are in the line of the Roman empires, emperors. People like Augustus, the first Roman emperor, Tiberius, and Nero. And there's four changes that occur in the life of the person that's being adopted. There's a change of family. There's a change of name. There would be a change of home. And there would be a change of responsibilities. And I know about these firsthand because I was given the name at birth. Michael Kaysen Minitry. But soon after my birth, my parents divorced. And when my mother remarried, uh, I was given a new name. She remarried Edward West, and so my name was changed to Michael Edward West. And I became a permanent member of his household, his family. And I have all the rights and the privileges of a natural-born son. And I never use the title of stepdad because he's my daddy, my dad. You know, the Spirit of God comes into our hearts and it prompts us to call out daddy. That's what Abba means in Aramaic. So there's that relationship that's there. And because I'm his son, then I'm also his heir. And so we see that adoption is the act of leaving one's natural family and entering into the privileges and the responsibilities of another. In the Bible, adoption is used as one of the several family-related terms. And 
It describes the process of salvation and its subsequent benefits. God is a father who graciously adopts us as his children into a spiritual family and grants us the privileges of heirship. Salvation is much more than forgiveness of sins and deliverance from condemnation. It's also a position of great blessing. Believers are children of God. Let's look at verse 6 and 7 one more time. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Daddy. So you no longer are a slave, but you're God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. That's our position. That's our identity as a child of God. In Christ, we are holy. We are blameless before God. But we need to appropriate that identity and position in Christ. We can misunderstand it or become, be ignorant of who we are in Christ. You know, the reason that many are living defeated lives is because they think that they are the ones that need to overpower sin. And they spend their lives trying to do so, and it becomes this power struggle of good versus evil, and our will gets, willpower gets involved. And, and you may be able to do that for a while, but none of us can keep the law. And so what is actually going on is that we're subjecting ourselves back into the law, trying to keep those commands or, or uh, defeat the devil on our own. The devil's already been defeated. We are secure in the position of where we are in Christ. We are seated at the right hand of the Father, and all things have been placed under his feet, and we are in Christ. And so the devil has no legal right over you. The truth is we're no longer slaves to sin. On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln signed an executive order, and it's known as the Emancipation Proclamation. And it immediately changed the lives of over three million of the slaves that were held in the Confederate States. This action led to the signing of the 13th Amendment that expanded that law two years later, expanded it to the entire United States and made it illegal to own slaves, to have slavery or involuntary servitude. So on January 2nd, 1863, how many slaves do you think there were in those Confederate states? Yeah, in reality, None. But it took a while for the news to, to travel. Some left the plantations and headed north as soon as they learned of their freedom. But others still continued to live and to be slaves because they never learned the truth. See, that was before the internet and before 24-hour news channels. And so the slave owners, they surmised that if we 
keep these folks believing that they're slaves, then the proclamation of emancipation will have no effect. And then there were others that willingly stayed on the plantations, even after hearing the news of their freedom, because they knew nothing else. And they continued living as they had been taught. You see, the gospel, the good news, is the proclamation of emancipation for every sinner, everyone who is sold into the slavery of sin. Every person comes into this world with a sinful nature. We are separated from God. But when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of man, we're given a new nature, a new spirit, a new heart, a new name, a new position, a new authority and responsibilities. We're no longer children of wrath, but we're children of God. We read in Ephesians, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit is who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's who we were, but it's not who we are. As believers, we have been redeemed and set free by the precious blood of Jesus. And we're no longer sinners in the hands of an angry God, but we're saints in the arms of a loving Savior. We're forgiven, justified, redeemed, born again children of God. And we may not feel like it. We may not act like it. And other people may tell us that we're not. But the truth is, if you've placed your trust in Christ, you are sanctified in Christ. And as we yield our lives to God, the Holy Spirit continues that sanctifying work within us, cleaning up the inside. You know, don't focus on the outside, clean up the inside. And we don't do it in our own strength. The Holy Spirit is the one that will change our behavior because if you change your thinking, your behavior follows. But we have to continue to appropriate that position. Don't let the devil tell you that you're a sinner. You can tell him you're a saint. Bob uh, Hoekstra, Hoekstra, I think, yeah. He's the author of Day by Day by Grace. He says, this work of the Holy Spirit is not automatic or robotic. Rather, it's relational. It's realized in our lives through humble dependence. It is when we depend on the Holy Spirit to lead us in the path of obedience that we will truly live as obedient children of God. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables us to walk in our true identity as children of God and empowers us to walk in obedience to the Father. In Philippians, God tells us that God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. There is no condemnation. All our sins, past, 
present and future are forgiven. And there's nothing that we need to do in order to be approved by God because we are already approved by Him. We can't lose that acceptance by anything that we do or don't do. We have been adopted and given a permanent place in God's family. And because you are His child, He has also made you His heir. Now, to appropriate our identity in Christ, we need to understand that we're children of God and we've been set free from the slavery of sin. Through our co-crucifixion with Christ, that old man has died. That old person that we used to be no longer exists. He died and was buried. And when Christ was raised from the dead, we were raised and given new life. The Spirit of God quickened our spirit and we are born again. We're not improved. We're made new. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us. Father, I thank you that we are accepted and we are secure in your love and that your Holy Spirit continues to work at making us more like Jesus and so we surrender our lives to the working of your Holy Spirit and we ask that you continue to transform us we acknowledge Lord that we are dependent upon you and we can't do it in our own strength or our own willpower or ambition, but we rely on you. And so I ask that you watch over us as we leave this meeting place. And Father, I pray that we will continue to be mindful of your presence that is with us always. And may the name of Jesus be glorified in all that we do. Amen. As we close our service, we'll be taking our offering. This has been a message from Living Word Chapel. We hope that you've been blessed by it. Make sure you check out lwcoracle.org for more information.